This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 122, beginning in verse 1. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. That you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things in your law, in your word. God, as we hear from you in this psalm this morning, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. And God, that you would, we pray, satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to consider this question uh, with me for a moment. How do you go to church? How do you come to the gathering of God's people? And you can really answer that question in three primary ways. First, you can answer it like in the Google Maps way. You can say like what I do is I, I take a left onto Lake Street and I take a right onto Lexington Street. Then I veer off to the right on Bacon Street, which is just the greatest street name ever. Then I take a left on uh, a School Street, a right on Exchange Street, and then I'm at the Boys and Girls Club where we gather for Sunday mornings. You can answer that question that way. Or you can answer the question more externally. How do you go to church? I, well, I come in my Sunday best. I have been very privileged all of my Christian life to be part of uh, churches that um, have casual dress. Thank the Lord for it. If you're into the three-piece suit, I wear a tie like once a year, sports coat twice a year, that's it, but I'm thankful for that. This is my Sunday best, right? Or you can answer that question in sort of the deeper way, which is what David is getting at for us this morning. How do you come to the gathering of the people of God? How do you go to church and reflect on the condition of your heart? What's your attitude as you approach the worship gathering of the people of God? What are your motives for being here? And this is an important question to ask because like we understand, it's very easy to be in the right place for the wrong reason. We all get that. We can be doing the right thing with the wrong motives. And oftentimes, because we're sinners with sinful hearts, we can understand the, the duty and responsibility of gathering as the people of God. After all, you're here, right? I'm preaching to the choir. I don't need to say, hey, you need to be here because you're here. You can understand that part, but while 
understanding and pursuing the duty of gathering with the people of God, we can very easily neglect the, the delight of gathering as God's people. The, the heart that God desires for us to have as we come into the presence of God, as the people of God. It's easy for that to happen because the reality is that gathering as God's people is by nature the same thing every week. It's a good thing, by the way. We'll get to that in a moment. But when you get into the same routine of doing the same thing every week, it's easy to drift into going through the motions without evaluating your heart and asking the question, why am I here? And how would God have me approach what's happening here right now? And that's the question we want to get at this morning. That third way, that internal question of how do we come to the gathering of the people of God? That's what Psalm 122 is digging in. And what what King David is doing here is he's going to do this in three ways for us. He's going to show us three ways to go to church, just to tell you where we're headed. First, we see in verses 1 and 2 that we're supposed to come to the gathering with glad expectation. Glad expectation. Second, we see that we're to come with a unified gratitude. We see that in verses 3 through 5. And then finally, at the end of the psalm, David shows us that we are to come with prayers for peace in verses 6 through 9. Glad expectation, unified gratitude, and prayer for peace. So let's jump in. Look again with me at verse 1. Song of Ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. A little background is helpful here. This is, as the verse tells us, a song of ascent. Now, the songs of ascent or the psalms of ascent were a grouping within the book of Psalms of 15 psalms, verses 120 all the way to 134. And they were meant to be short worship songs that were sung by Jewish believers as they approached Jerusalem on one of their three major pilgrimages each year. So they were given these songs, and they would sing them together as they approached to worship. And if you look back, you don't actually have to glance there, but if you were to go back later and read uh, Psalm 120, which is the first song of ascent, and Psalm 121, you would then, you'd see a sort of progression that's happening here. In Psalm 120, there's this pilgrim, he's attending this worship gathering, he's on this journey, but he's far away from God's people. There's a sense of distress there. There's distance from Jerusalem. When we get to Psalm 121, the pilgrim is facing difficulty. And he says, a famous psalm, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. There are two psalms that express difficulty and distance from God and his people. And then we come to Psalm 122, our psalm for this morning. And as we get to this psalm, we're introduced to a new emotion for the psalms of ascent. There's not distance, there's not distress, there's not discouragement. Instead, what does the pilgrim say? He says, I was glad. There's delight, there's joy and anticipation as this pilgrim is expecting to worship God in Jerusalem. There's glad anticipation. We've started a new routine in our family where we, we take the kids, when they turn five, we take them to Fenway. How many of you have been to Fenway, just by a show of hands? Jacob, I already know you can put your hand down, right? Fenway Park, oldest, even if you're not a Red Sox fan, by the way, 
we're doing really well right now. Um, even if you're not a Red Sox fan, that's fine. I'm not really, uh, I'm not into sports ball just in general. Um, but Fenway is a historic experience, oldest park in the U.S. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. And so we took our son Aiden, he turned five in May, we took him to a Red Sox game, his first Red Sox game. And the joy of going to Fenway is, it's in the game, right? But it's also in the journey to the game. So we decided we're not going to drive down there. We're going to take the T. We're going to take the subway. And we got up, get on the green line. And we get off at Kenmore Station. And we, we come out of the T station. And you see the huge, famous Boston sit-go sign. Nod your heads if you're with me. If not, that's okay. Google it later. And you're standing under it. And he's just amazed. You're with the crowd. You're walking down the street. And you, you're turning left. And you cross over the Mass Turnpike, which they've renamed this bridge David Ortiz Bridge. And you're with the people, and you start to smell the hot dogs on the grill. We call them Fenway Franks, right? And you start to hear street musicians. And as we're walking, just me and my wife Lauren and our five-year-old son Aiden, she had the, the idea to take the phone out and get his reaction as we're coming across David Ortiz Bridge. And we're coming, there's a, a little pub on the corner there. And when you turn left on Lansdowne Street, you're behind left field, and there is the green monster. And he's, he's been told about this, like older brothers told him. He's, he's just excited. He's jumping up and down. He's listening to street drummers. My wife's got, you know, the camera on him. And he comes down, and he sees the, the back of the green monster. I'm sorry, the green monster, Right? And he starts jumping up and down, and he says, there it is! Total sheer excitement. Now, we, we giggle at that. It's cute. It's a five-year-old, but I'm sure you can point to an experience in your past where you went to a concert of a band you loved, or you went to a stadium that you loved, or you saw a team that you loved, and you understand that anticipation as you're traveling there, right? We've all been there. What's so interesting about that is when we come to the Bible, the closest parallel we see to that experience is a pilgrim attending a worship gathering of the people of God. The language of gladness here is not just he was happy because he got to go to church. No, the language gets at giddiness with laughter as he approached Jerusalem. There was a deep and abiding, glad expectation. Now that may sound strange to us, and don't feel guilty if you weren't like giddy with laughter as you were walking in this morning. But we've got to dig deeper and say, okay, what was this pilgrim? What would they have expected as they were attending Jerusalem for one of these major feasts? And I just want to point out three things that they would have expected that we can expect as well. The first thing that this pilgrim would have expected that would have built this sense of glad anticipation was they would have expected hearing the word of God taught. They would have expected hearing God's word. Deuteronomy 33.10 tells us that one of the primary responsibilities of the priests was to open and expound the law of God. We see how important this is just in a few psalms earlier. Psalm 119, the longest, chapter, the longest book in the Bible, chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. It's essentially a love poem about the law of God. So this pilgrim would have thought things like this. Psalm 119, verse 14, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. We stopped at a museum 
in D.C., one of the Smithsonian Museums, and we saw the Hope Diamond. Had no idea it was there. We just walked by this room. People were gathering around. And a tour guide was there, and he was saying, this diamond, this thing about this big, is worth about $200 million. I can't even, that, I can't wrap my mind around that. That's a lot of money. And here the psalmist says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. $200 million, the testimonies of God, I'll take the testimonies of God any day. Psalm 119, 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119, 35, lead me in the path of your commandments. Why? For I delight in it. There was a glad anticipation of the word of God. Let me ask you, do you anticipate hearing the word of God with gladness as you come to this gathering on a Sunday morning? Here's, here's not what I'm asking. I'm not saying, do you know that you're going to hear a good expositional sermon? You know that. That's part of the joy of attaching yourself to a Bible-believing church that has a rightly high view of Scripture. What I'm asking, what I believe God wants us to ask is, are we, do we understand that when that takes place, it is the very Word of God speaking to us? As the author of Hebrews says, it's not an old dead book, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Or as Paul tells young Timothy, it's God-breathed, able to make you wise unto salvation. The word of God is what saves and the word of God is what sanctifies. It's what draws people to Christ and it's what makes them holy. To tell you one story of how we've seen this recently, there's a lady in our church um, who grew up in greater Boston, grew up Catholic, somehow got mixed into just sort of new age spirituality, this kind of mixture of her own religion. She, she attaches to what we're doing. She's drawn by the community, by the relationships. She starts hearing the word of God just consistently on a Sunday morning, Gospel of Mark, Colossians, a series on church membership, the Psalms. She plugs into a gospel community where they're just very slowly walking through Ephesians. There's unbelievers there. There's believers there. There's people from all different walks of life. She comes to a how to study the Bible class that we do on a Sunday afternoon at the library. And during a break, she comes up to me and she says, this is blowing my mind. And I'm like, what's blowing your mind? She's like, this word of God stuff. And she said, I'm so close she goes, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm close. And we knew this. We were praying for her. We're about to have a conversation with her about how she can't approach the Lord's table because she's, she's not a believer. And a few weeks after she told me that, she goes to a women's retreat. We did a joint women's retreat where they're walking through 1 Peter. And the Holy Spirit flips the switch. She comes to the Lord's table. The, the next Sunday, I knew, I, was, I knew this was going to happen at this part. And she approaches the Lord's table and she says, it happened. I treasure Jesus above all else. And what's so incredible is if you go back and you, you talk to her about what, hap like what happened, she'll tell you, 
It was the Word on Sunday mornings. It was the Word in gospel community. It was the Word in your hermeneutics class, how to study the Bible. It was the Word in First Peter on that women's retreat. The Word does the work. It's what saves. And guess who comes to gatherings with the most glad expectation to hear the Word of God? She does. The Word saves. And we, friends, we should expect that. We should expect God to draw people in, but it also sanctifies. It makes us holy. Listen, you've been listening to sermons all week before you get here without even realizing it. You're hearing sermons from the world. You're hearing sermons from whatever news channel you watch that you should probably just not watch, right? You're hearing sermons from Twitter, from commercials, from whatever you're watching. You're hearing sermons from the enemy whispering in your ear saying, you're not good enough for God to love you. Or the other lie, you're too good for God. What do you need when you come in here? You need to come expecting the word of God to speak to you, to correct you, to comfort you. You need to hear that God is faithful, he's alive, he is still speaking. Do you come with glad expectation to be refreshed, challenged, corrected by the word of God? of God. This is what the pilgrim expected. He also expected that he would encounter the presence of God. He was going to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem at the time David wrote this, there was the tabernacle, later on the more permanent temple. And in that tabernacle, there was an inner place called the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. It was the literal dwelling place of the presence of God among his people. God's always desired to be present with his people. So he established the tabernacle and later the temple where he could be with his people. So as the pilgrims attended these worship feasts and these gatherings, they would expect closeness to the presence of God. Now I want to pause there. I'm going to return to that later. But suffice it to say, we too, in a special way, expect that when we come together as the people of God, we're experiencing the presence of God. So he would have expected to hear the word, the presence of God, and then he was glad because he was with the people of God. Look again at verse 1. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Do you notice a shift here? Here's what I'm guessing happened. The pilgrim was attending by himself, and it seems like a group of worshipers said, hey, let's go to this together. And because he was no longer alone, the worshippers' gladness was magnified by being with other people of God. See, this is why you rarely see people at Fenway or SunTrust Park uh, alone. If that's you, like if you just like to go to baseball games alone, hey, no judgment here. But usually, what do you want to do? You want to go with your friends, right? You want to go with your family. You want to enjoy the experience to, together because community magnifies our gladness. Here's the way C.S. Lewis put it. He says, delight is incomplete until it's expressed to others. I think that's what's happening here. We understand this. The last time you read a, a great book, you wanted to share it with somebody else. The last time you were alone watching a beautiful sunset, you wish your loved one was there to share that experience with you, right? 
last time you had a, a delicious meal, what'd you say? Here, you got to try this. Some of you are like, no, I don't share my food. But most of you who are generous and kind, right? You're like, you've got, you've got to taste this. This is delicious. Because community magnifies our gladness. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. Let me speak to my fellow introverts for a moment. I understand there is a value and really a necessity in our Christian lives of getting alone with God. I don't want to sound imbalanced. You need to spend time away from the noise of life, alone, in your prayer closet, reading your Bible, spending time in prayer. In fact, we probably, in our distracted age, need more of that. So what I'm not saying is don't do that. But what I am saying is when we come to Scripture, we don't see people saved and brought into a private religion. It's just not there. People are saved into the family of God. That's why when the disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray, he doesn't say, pray like this, my Father who art in heaven. What does he say? Our Father, right? God himself, remember, is a community. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, enjoying, delighting in each other from eternity past. He created us not out of need, but out of an overflowing delight. He created us in his image, which means just like God is a community, we need one another. Here's what I'm saying. This right here is not just about you and God. It's about us and God. Worship is never solely vertical. It's also horizontal. So to give you an example, I can't tell you how many times it happened this morning where I, I came in, and I, I, I was singing a, a congregational worship song, and I, I, I think to myself, how much different would this be if I was just singing this by myself? But then I look around, and I see other saints, some whom I've known for a long time, some I've never met you before, and I'm reminded, oh yeah, I'm not the only one who sings, glory be to our great God. I'm not the only one who comes in dejected and needs to be encouraged by the reality of who God is. That means I'm not just singing for myself, and you're not just singing for yourself. You're singing for me, and I'm singing for you. That's why Paul encourages the church to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to one another. Because it's not just me and God, it's us and God. So his worship was magnified by this community. He was glad, sure, but he was glad when they said, let us together go to the house of the Lord. So we're to come with this glad expectation that we're going to hear God's word, that, that we're going to encounter God's presence as the people of God. It leads us to number two. We're to come with a unified gratitude. Number one, we're to come with glad expectation. Number two, we are to come to the gathering with unified gratitude. Look at verse 3. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. So David is continuing this theme of togetherness here, and he does this poetically. He gives us a play on words. Remember, David was a songwriter, and he was a poet. And what he says here is, is actually a literal observation. He's saying Jerusalem was built as a city that is bound firmly together. 
That's just a literal observation of saying this city is jam-packed tight. There's not big lawns, right? You're, you're, you're just shoulder to shoulder in this tight, compact city. But that word for bound in verse 3 sounds very similar to the word companion. And that's David's play on words there. He's saying, listen, the literal closeness of the city of Jerusalem is representing the spiritual unity of the people of God. Jerusalem, habitation of peace, is bound firmly together. Now, here's where I want to pause. I said I'd return to the presence of God. This is important. We're talking about attending a city on the other side of the world for a Jewish feast three times a year, 3,000 years ago. So you should be asking, what in the world does this have to do with us today? I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. Let me do my best to try and answer it for you. As we said already, the Old Testament tabernacle and later on the, the temple represented the, the literal dwelling place of God on earth. But those places were never meant to be permanent. They were temporary. They were pointing to something in the future that was eternal that would come and dwell among God's people. And if we fast forward, we see that the presence of God among his people is not fulfilled in a city or in a building, but it's fulfilled in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So when we, we turn, for example, to the Gospel of John, and we read John's first chapter, John says in, verses, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. Later on in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, Jesus himself says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And John comments, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. If you want to experience the presence of God among God's people, if you want to experience the gladness of a relationship with God. You don't go to a city, you go to Christ. You don't go to a building, you go to the person of Jesus. Right? So important for us to understand. So many of us have a skewed view of what this is right here, just by the nature of where we live in the way we were taught Christianity when we've grown up, that there is something special about this. Praise God for buildings. I was at New Branch when we didn't have this beautiful thing, right? Praise, someone showed me the trailer that you guys loaded in for a, a while. And yes, praise God for this building. It is special in that way. But there is nothing special about the wood or about the brick and mortar that gives us the presence of God. We don't go to a place or to a city. We go to Christ. So Jerusalem, for us, the Christian, this answers the question, what does this have to do with us? Jerusalem is, or, or I'm sorry, the tabernacle is Jesus for us. So then what is Jerusalem? Here's what Derek Kidner says. He says, what Jerusalem was to the Israelite, the church is to the Christian. Right? It's helping us apply this today. We are the city of God. In 1630, 
uh, a Puritan named John Winthrop was sailing on the Arabella. He was approaching the, uh, America, and he was approaching what would be the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he preached this famous sermon where he said that we shall be a city on a hill and the eyes of all people will be upon us. It's a famous American sermon. And if you look throughout presidential history, it's quoted by John F. Kennedy. It's been quoted by Ronald Reagan. It's been quoted by Barack Obama. And it's become this sort of, here's what we are as a nation. But of course, if you're familiar with the New Testament... You know this is not about America. If you didn't realize that, sorry to burst your bubble. It's not. These are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14, where he's speaking to a group of Jews gathered to hear him preach, and he says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. They would have heard that and thought, what? I thought the city on a hill was 80 miles south in Jerusalem. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, no, no, no. That city had a time and a purpose. But you who believe in me, you who repent and believe the gospel, you who follow Christ, my disciples, you are the city on a hill that can't be hidden. You are the new Jerusalem. If we look at verse 4, we see more parallels for us. He says, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of of the Lord. Israel was full of many different tribes, 12 primary ones, but they all would come together to worship. And we as God's people are from many different nations, backgrounds, interests, socioeconomic statuses, but what do we do? We come together to do what? End of verse 4, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. That's what the church is. Do you ever stop and think about the strangeness of Christ's church? You're supposed, there's, it's supposed to be what God desires for it to be. What he is building is people from all sorts of different nations with all sorts of different interests and backgrounds. Has nothing to do with your pay grade. And you're to come together and you're to be unified in your gratitude for what Christ has done on the cross. What other group do you know that's like that? There isn't one. Everything else gathers around affinity We look like this, so let's come together. We share this hobby, so let's come together. We're the same age, so let's come together. Jesus says that's not the church. The church comes together not around common affinity, but around what? A common Savior. So what is Christ building? He's building a people who come together with unified gratitude. They may have nothing in common. In fact, I think about that often. Like, I would never be friends with that person if I wasn't a Christian. Don't point any fingers. So you say, what do we have in common? Here's what we have in common. I'm a sinner in desperate need of grace. And so is he, and so is she, and so is she. And Christ has given us that grace on the cross. So we're unified around a common Savior to do what? To give thanks to God for this salvation. Verse 5, he says, The thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. We don't look to a king in Jerusalem now. Who is our king who rules justly over us? It's King Jesus. So we're to come desiring this, expecting this. And this leads us to number three. We're to come with prayers for peace. With prayers for peace. So first, we're to come with 
glad expectation, a unified gratitude, and then number three, prayers for peace. David turns now. He's kind of told you about the pilgrim. We don't know if it was him or if he's writing poetically about another worshiper, but he now turns to exhortation. Look at verse six. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Here's another uh, poetic trick, a play on words from King David. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem means habitation of peace. Jerusalem or Jerusalem. Peace is the word shalom. So what David is saying is, pray for the peace of the habitation of peace. It's very similar to, to what Paul says in Ephesians 4.1 where he says, walk in according to your calling. He's saying, you who are called to be the people of peace, pray that you will live as the people of peace. Pray that you will be who God has called you to be. Now, when we think of peace, we generally think of absence of war, absence of conflict, and it's certainly that, but this word for peace here means much more. It doesn't just mean the absence of war. It also means the presence of flourishing. In fact, I think if you're looking for like a good modern synonym for shalom or for peace, the word flourishing is a very helpful word. That's what David is saying here. You want the people of God to flourish. You want to see Christ's church grow. You want to see them unified. You want to see them joyful together. You want to see the mission advancing. And if that is going to happen, listen, if that's going to happen in New Branch, if that's going to happen in Seven Mile Road, or any church, it's going to require prayer. We have to be people of prayer. Why? Because God has not called us to build an organization like the world builds organizations. God has called us to be a supernatural people. And the task that God has called us to is, hear me on this, this is not an overstatement, it is impossible without the Spirit of God. Think about unity in such a diverse group of people. I drove two days with my five kids and my wife in a car to get here. Not like here this morning. You guys are like, you did that yesterday? No, last week. We're from the same family. And it was a, it's a miracle that like we're still a family. What happens when you get people from all sorts of different backgrounds and you put them in a group together and you say, hey, live life together? None of us are under the illusion that that's going to be easy. That unity requires a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. So we must be constantly praying for that unity. Or think about not just the unity of God's people, think about the mission that God has called us to. Here's what you guys are going to do. This is, my, this is the Kevin Sanders version of uh, Matthew 28. I want you guys to go out. I'm going to fill you with the Spirit. You're going to go out and you're going to tell people this message. That there was a man for us 2,000 years ago. He, he came to earth, fully man and fully God. Don't ask me how that works, it just does. And he lived perfectly righteous. Didn't sin one bit. Then he was crucified. And by the way, this was the plan of God from the beginning, from before the foundations of the world. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He was buried. And then three days later, just like he said he would, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, so that all who believe in him would have eternal life. You got it? Disciples are like, yeah, we got it. All right. 
Now I want you to go tell the world that, and listen, a ton of people are going to believe it. There's people who are going to embrace that gospel message. Now the world hears that, and they, they think, that's foolish. That's absurd. Yet friends, look around you. We are here because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit has wrought in our hearts to believe a seemingly absurd message like that. And why do we believe it? Because it's true, one, and because the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to see that truth. The mission of God is not, hey, gather a bunch of people here and build this organization. No, the mission of God is proclaim the gospel and watch the Spirit work. That can't happen without supernatural work. Therefore, we must be people of prayer. If we want the church to flourish, we must beg God to move. Because the primary things that God has called us to are things that we cannot do on our own. Let it not be said of us what one Chinese pastor said when he visited the United States and did a tour of different churches. He came to the end of his, his journey and someone asked him, what do you think about the American church? And he said, it's amazing what Americans, Christians can do without the Spirit of God. What an indictment. May that not be said of us. May we be people of prayer that God would unite his church, that God would advance his gospel. David even gives us some, some guidance here in how we are to pray. Verse 7, he says, pray that peace be within your walls. Pray for the inside. Pray for what's going on inside the church, for unity, for leadership. Do you pray for your pastors? Do you pray for them as they're studying the word and as they're shepherding people? Do you pray for your base groups? Do you pray that there would be gospel growth, not just numerically, but inward, deep gospel growth for one another? One just simple guide to this is to pray Acts 42. Pray that your church and the church at large would be a people devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And then pray that the response would be awe would come upon people. And the Lord would add to the numbers day by day those who are being saved. Pray for peace within the church, but then pray for peace outside. He says, for security within your towers. It's this idea of defense. Pray for protections from threats of the enemy against the church. Listen, there is, if you're, if you're paying attention at all, maybe you're not, but God is doing something in the church at large by uncovering a whole load of sin that famous high-profile church leaders have been hiding for years. Pray against that. We have the freedom in this country to do what we're doing without fear of that door being busted in right now, but do you pray for persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who can't do this but in secret? Are you a person committed to prayer? I'm convinced, and this is true in my life, that this is one of the most neglected disciplines of the Christian because we feel like we're not doing anything when we sit down and pray. We're wasting time. There's stuff to be done, even good godly things. But do you notice that the only call to action in this psalm is pray? That's it. Pray. But it doesn't end with prayer. Prayer's not an excuse for, you know, pushing off obedience. 
Notice what happens in verse 9 as we come to the end of the psalm. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. As Charles Spurgeon says, here David, his delight gives way to devotion. He's saying, I'm not just going to pray for the peace of God's people and the flourishing of God's people. I'm going to give my life for it. I'm going to be committed to seeking your good. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? And brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to. We're called to come together with glad expectation, with a unified gratitude, prayerfully pursuing the flourishing of God's church. And notice that this is not just about a Sunday morning. This is about what we are called to as Christians every day of our lives, to seek the good of God's people. As we close, just let me make this this one comment. It really doesn't look like much, does it? You come in here, week in and week out, you pray, you read scripture, you sing songs, you hear the word, you do the same thing the next week. You may feel like, man, not, not, it is kind of mundane. Just the ordinary means of grace. But it's kind of like when you look at a picture of your kid from a few years ago. Right, I see my kids every day. What I love coming back here is I'm reminded how much my kids have grown since I've moved. As we walked in this morning, my, my little one, Haddon, the one wreaking havoc earlier during worship, he's three now. And I was talking to someone as we were walking in. I realized, you know what? He was two months old when we moved. See, I see him every day, so I think there's not much change. But what, what is, what's happened over time? He's grown and he's grown and he's grown, and he's grown. The same happens when we gather as the people of God. What is God doing? He's growing us together. We're inching towards heaven. In fact, we are rehearsing for heaven. We come in here and we sing because what will we do around the throne? We'll sing to King Jesus. We come in here and we pray and we preach because what will we do? There will be one day when we will have perfect communion with the triune God. No interruptions. We come to the Lord's table because one day we'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We desire to see the nations gathered because one day the nations will be gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus. There is coming a day when glad expectation will give way to full delight. When our desire for unity will be fully realized. When shalom and flourishing will be completely perfected. So, brothers and sisters, let us rehearse well as we gather as the people of God. Let's pray together.